Hi, I'm Adam. This is my mom. Nice to meet you. Would you mind turning off the TV? Oh, thank you. Any any background noise will come in on the things. That's Maria talking to her mom. Maria just got home from school. Home being a mobile home, far from new but in good shape, and school being a high school in Caldwell, Idaho. Maria takes my request for quiet seriously and knocks on her little brother's door. When you hear this, Maria will have already put on her cap and gown and walked across a stage to receive her diploma. But on this day, she's wearing a Lewis Clark State College t-shirt and has four days of school left and two final exams. I feel like I've been studying so hard throughout the whole semester that I don't need to study. I just need to review a little. The thing with me is that every time I didn't understand something, I would stay after school and like ask for help. When I talk to Maria, I'm often struck by how good a student she is. I think that's probably because when I was her age, back before podcast was a word, I was not. I'd put forth great effort to avoid doing schoolwork. But Maria takes school seriously, and she likes it. But it's not her academic achievements I'm here to talk to her about. I've been talking to Maria because a few years ago, she was in the news. A lot. Well, not her individually, but what she was. In the last two months alone, October and November, more than 10,000 unaccompanied kids crossed into the United States. Almost 60,000 unaccompanied minors from Central America now live in the United States. Children who have entered the U.S. illegally. More than 200,000 unaccompanied children have arrived in the U.S. in the past four years. Remember back in 2014? For a while, there was wall-to-wall news coverage about unaccompanied minors showing up on the southern U.S. border seeking asylum. They'd traveled, sometimes thousands of miles alone, and said the places they were from had become too violent to live in. Most of the coverage was of young people from Central America, but Mexican kids made up about a quarter of that wave. So what happened to those thousands and thousands of unaccompanied minors? Well, many of them are in the U.S., released into the custody of relatives, to wait, usually years, for the immigration courts to decide if they can stay or not. And a handful of those formerly unaccompanied minors are in Idaho. I'm Adam Cotterell, and this is Some of the Parts, a podcast from Boise State Public Radio. In this episode, the stories of two young people living in two different violent countries, but both dreaming of making it to the same place, and what they did to make those dreams come true. So what was this Eden they longed for, this promised land, this shining city on a hill? Canyon County, Idaho. But first, this is the place where I give you some numbers. According to the Office for Refugee Resettlement, almost 170,000 unaccompanied minors arrested on the U.S. border were sent to live with relatives in the U.S. from October 2013 to March of this year. In that time, 77 were sent to Idaho. Not 77,000 or 7,700, just 77. The number sent to Idaho obviously is minuscule compared to some other states. California, Florida, Georgia, Maryland, New York, Texas, Virginia, all have been getting several thousand a year. A few states got fewer of these young asylum seekers than Idaho. Alaska, Hawaii, Maine, Montana, North Dakota, Vermont, Wyoming. 
it's all a matter of where they had relatives willing to take them in. And that brings us back to Maria's parents' kitchen table. Okay, so we got our yearbooks today. Brand new. Uh-huh. We mm. looked through it and... It smells new. I like the smell. Can I see your picture? Sure. Oh, that's a nice picture. Thank you. What does it say? Um, in three words, I can sum up everything I learned in life. It goes on. And that's a quote from Robert Frost? Robert Frost. Yes. Are, you, are you in there anywhere else? Uh, I haven't gotten a chance to look throughout the whole thing, but I don't think so. I'm not a really photogenic person. Maria says none of the activities she did got yearbook pictures. That includes the FHLA Club, Future Hispanic Leaders of America, and Youth Government. That's an extracurricular activity where high school students learn about, surprise, government. As part of that, she recently completed a thing called State, where kids spend a week at the Idaho Capitol building pretending to be legislators and debating the merits of bills. I applied to do it in high school and did not get selected. More proof to me that Maria is a way better student than I ever was. As she leafs through her yearbook with its paper, ink, and glue smell, she sounds a little melancholy as she passes the pictures of the marching band and the girls' basketball team. I would have loved to have, like, learned how to play an instrument or be in, um, in sports. Because yeah. when I was little, I was always like, oh, once I hit middle school, I'm going to make my mom put me in soccer, you know. Maria was born in Mexico. I'm originally from Michoacan, Mexico, this little pueblito named Villa Madero. When she was three, she says, her parents brought her and her two older brothers to Caldwell. Her younger brother was born a year later. For the next eight years, they lived in Caldwell and New Plymouth. So for Maria, Idaho is home. It's the first place she remembers and the place she made all her good childhood memories. But when she was 11, her parents, who were undocumented, decided maybe they'd be better off if they went back to Michoacan and worked the family farm. So they did. We had cows, we had pigs, chickens, and sheep. We just used to take care of them. And I had to learn how to cook, how to make tortillas. And sewing and other domestic work. And for Maria, it was a culture shock. She says she knows Caldwell is not a big place, but it was Gotham compared to where she found herself. We had no neighbors. It was just like on a little hill. And there was nobody to communicate with. And so she'd dream of home. So yeah, I used to think a lot about here because... I hear that people are more open-minded and you can do many more things than over there. And so, yeah, I missed it a lot. What would you think about most? Uh, school. I used to love school and my teachers and everybody was nice. She missed her friends and her fifth grade teacher in New Plymouth, Mr. Reed. I learned a lot from him. His class was hard. He was strict, but it was nice. But at least she got to go to school for a while. My dad let me go for a little bit, but then they decided it was best if I didn't go to school. So Maria tried to explain why her dad pulled her out of school. And some of it, I couldn't even understand what she was talking about. Not until I went and read up on the last decade in Michoacan. Most of what I'd read and heard in recent years about Mexico has been about the border areas. The state of Michoacan is in the south-central part of the country, down by Mexico City. And it is... I'm trying to think of a way to describe it without using a word that the powers that be at Boise State Public Radio would insist I beep. So I'll just say 
it is messed up, really messed up. Here's my take on writing a tourist brochure for Michoacan. This picturesque state is known for its wild beauty, which includes the world-famous monarch butterfly wintering grounds, and for its culture, like the popular film festival in its capital city. Its main industries are agriculture, mining, and methamphetamine production. Another claim to fame is as the birthplace of Mexico's drug war, which started when the Mexican federal government sent thousands of troops to fight a Michoacan drug cartel in 2006. I guess my next gig after this podcast will probably not be working for the Michoacan Tourism Board. So this next bit here, I wrote it and rewrote it, trying not to give you too much detail on the decade-plus-long war in this far-off part of Mexico. So here is a 39-second snapshot of what was going on just at the time Maria finally left. The Mexican federal government is fighting, without much success, a drug cartel called the Knights Templar. The Templars claim to be a friend of the people and claim to be doing God's will and providing divine justice. That's done often through killing and mutilation for offenses large and small. Foreign journalists sometimes compare life under Templar control to life in Syria under ISIS. Citizens, frustrated by the government's failures, had created militias to fight the Templars, but by 2014, they're also fighting amongst each other and have dipped their toes into the drug trade, essentially becoming rival cartels. Violence is everywhere. But when Maria's family arrived, it was still early days. Bad, but not quite that bad. Still, after a brief shot at sixth grade, Maria is confined to the farm. Each time I was able to go out, I had to be accompanied by one of my brothers or by my mother or my father. I could never leave the house alone. Things are particularly bad for girls. Some people think any girl who goes to school is morally suspect, and being morally suspect can be dangerous for women, even fatal. Rape is common. So is kidnapping and forced marriage. If someone decided to make you his wife, you couldn't really do nothing about it. I've known a few people that were kidnapped and that got married that way. So for almost three years, Maria seldom goes anywhere. When I turned about 14, I started asking them, like, I really want to go back to school. Like, it's something I really want to do. And by that time, my little brother was going to school, so they would let me go with him and come back with him. And that's how I got to finish sixth grade over there. Maria's trip to school every day takes about half an hour, but not by bus or even on foot. We used to have mules or a donkey. <laughs> I get kind of obsessed by this detail of Maria's life, and I keep coming back to it and asking more and more questions about riding mules and donkeys to school. Like this time we're standing in front of her house after she's shown me where her aunt lives, a few spaces away in the mobile home park. My little brother, he had to get up and look for the donkey or the mules so we could get to school. And if he couldn't find it, we would have to go walking to school and walk back. And I mean, in the morning, it wasn't that bad because it was like cool and stuff. But in the afternoons, it was so hot that you almost fainted because you had to walk like up. It wasn't straight. It was like on a mountain up. It was like a hike. You have to catch the donkey in the morning? Yes. And sometimes they would be like running all over the place and they wouldn't let themselves. Or and sometimes they'll just come to you and you'll just take them home and you'll feed them before you leave. And You can't catch them the night before and like put them in a 
stall or tie them up or something? Um, so sometimes we would do that and we would like put food there, but like my dad didn't let us do it like each day of the week. He would say they wouldn't eat the same as if they were loose. I think the reason I get so fixated on riding mules to school, besides the fun rhyme, mules to school, mules to school, is that I think in the past, a lot of kids in Idaho must have ridden mules and donkeys to school. But as rural as the state still is, I'd bet no one has done it in a long time. I wonder when the last time was that a donkey carried someone to an Idaho public school. Maria says I'm not the first person to be intrigued by this. So I actually told my math teacher that I used to ride a donkey and she couldn't believe it. She just started laughing. And I'm like, it's true, I even have a picture. And so I grabbed my old cell phone and I showed her some pictures of when I used to live over there. So Maria finally got to finish elementary school, with some donkey assistance. But getting her to the Mexican equivalent of middle school was a new obstacle. After a while stuck at home again, her parents enrolled her in what's called an open school. I had to look these up. They're pretty common in Mexico. It's like government homeschooling. In a lot of places in Mexico, kids watch a teacher give lessons on TV. But Maria says hers consisted entirely of traveling to the pueblo, the town, every few weeks to pick up some books, going home and studying them on her own, then going to town to take a test and swap books. But once again, let me say, Maria is a pro when it comes to school. She finished 7th, 8th, and ninth grades in six months. By this time, Maria is 15, and the violence in Michoacan is escalating. My parents and I were at the Pueblo, and we were shopping because I was going to do my confirmation. And there was like a bad shooting where three cops were killed, and everybody just basically shut down their businesses, and they didn't let anybody in. And so my parents and I were in the plaza, and so we had to hide. They ducked into an alley and crouched behind a broken cement wall. I'm picturing a quaint, quiet street. Suddenly gunfire is heard, and every shop and house instantly slides down those big metal gates that sometimes cover the fronts of stores. People trapped in the street run in all directions. I don't know if they have those gates, though. Seems likely. After that, I had to go to the doctors because I, I was getting panic attacks. But after a few visits, she was too afraid to go into town to see the doctor. Maria says she'd have a panic attack every time she'd see someone carrying a gun. And in Michoacan, a lot of people go everywhere armed. Eventually, Maria's parents decide to get out, go back to Idaho. This is, of course, exactly what she wants, what she's been dreaming about since leaving Mr. Reed's fifth grade class in New Plymouth. But Maria refuses to go. She had two reasons. You know, I didn't want to be here and be like, oh, yes, I'm undocumented. It's something I didn't want to do. I wanted to be here legally and, and be safe. Her hope was that her parents would go back to Idaho, get settled in, and find a way to bring her legally. Her second reason for refusing to go was simply that she was scared. More scared to try to cross the border illegally than to stay in this place where getting shot or kidnapped were ever-present possibilities. And... Maria had a solid reason for that. My oldest brother, the firstborn of my parents, he, he died in the desert. A while before, Maria's brother had decided to go back to the U.S. on his own. Somewhere in the desert where it's hard to tell what country you're in or how far away the border is, he died of dehydration. 
It was in 2012, um, in August. And uh, we really didn't know till like the next day when they couldn't find him. And they called my parents and they tried not to talk about it in front of us. Once they received the call, but I hid in the next room and you could hear it through the walls. So I kind of heard everything. And then they told us they had to make an emergency um, trip to Tijuana or to Mexicali. I can't remember. And they left. And then my little brother's like, why did they leave? And I didn't want to tell him. But I just ran into, like, you know, the, the mountains. And I just cried myself out. So when her parents and her two other brothers were ready to go, Maria stayed. Just me and my grandma. Is she still there? Yeah, she's over there still. Does she miss you? Oh, yes, and I miss her. She talks to her grandma on the phone a lot now. Through this whole part of the conversation, both of Maria's parents are sitting on the couch not far away. She has a close relationship with them and spends a lot of time cooking and taking walks with her mom and hanging out with her dad. That seems to consist mostly of picking on him, pulling his ears, pinching him. Both her parents are quite short. Her mom looks like an office worker or a bank teller in an emerald green top and dark pants. She works painting houses. Her dad has a friendly face with a mustache that reaches down to his jaw. He does construction. I'm wondering if they have any idea what we're talking about. Maria had told me they don't speak much English. Later, she tells me her mom is taking English classes at CWI. Maria jokes that her mom works hard at it, but hasn't made it past high and by. But they made it back to Idaho just fine. And my parents like, come over here so you could keep studying. And at first I was like, no, it's too dangerous. But the violence kept increasing. And after a while, her mental fear scale started to tip the other way. I was more afraid of like coming over here than staying there. But then the things got so bad that I'm like, well, yeah. If I make it, I mean, I can go to school and try to get, like, a career. And if I stay here, I'm I'm not going to be able to be someone. So she went to the state capitol, the one with the renowned film festival, and got on a plane to Tijuana. She was not going to waste any time and definitely not going through the desert. She says as soon as she landed, she went to the border crossing. This is a huge place where thousands of people cross legally both ways every day. Her plan was to mix with the crowds and slip through unnoticed. Some people actually managed to do this, but Maria did not. She was caught. They handcuffed me, and I started crying. What's it like being handcuffed? Oh my god, it was so bad. I felt like I was doing something really bad, you know? It was like the worst feeling I can't even imagine it. My eyes are getting watery. Does does it hurt? Uh, It doesn't hurt. It just feels uncomfortable. It kind of hurts your pride, like something like that. After she was caught and cuffed, Maria requested asylum. She told the Customs and Border Patrol agents that her parents were in the U.S. and that it was too dangerous for her to return to Michoacan. Because I was a minor, they put me in a room where there was ladies and they had babies families from Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. There was a lot of people coming because of the dangers, you know, and they were like, oh, I gave myself in and I'm trying to get in. 
I don't know if she knew it at the time, but this was one of those linchpin moments where a person's life is balanced precariously between entirely different destinies. If she were from one of the Central American countries her cellmates were from, the U.S. would have had to take her in at this point because of treaties it's part of. Cellmates is probably not the right word, but let's go with it. But because she's from Mexico, those treaties mean Border Patrol could have just sent her right back where she came from. It would have been up to their discretion. But that day, whoever was making the decision thought that her claims of danger were serious enough or convincing enough or something enough that a court should decide it. It's likely that having her parents in the U.S. was a big part of the reason. But still, whoever it was would have been within his or her authority to say, nope, back to Mexico. But on this day, at this moment, it was, yep, on to Idaho. Well, first it was on to a detention center for a few days, then to a group home in California for a couple of weeks. Maria says it wasn't bad. There was staff, and there were nine other girls. There was just a limit of ten girls per house, and they would feed you. You would have to do chores in the house, too, and the staff would take you to school and take you back. Then she was released to her parents' custody. They enrolled her in high school. She was 16. They got her a lawyer and started the legal process. She's 19 now. Okay, way back at the beginning of this, I told you that you'd hear two stories of people dreaming of escaping to Canyon County, Idaho, and achieving that dream. So I'm going to introduce you now to Natalie. Since much of the news coverage about unaccompanied minors in 2014 and 2015 was about kids from Central America fleeing gang violence, Natalie's story might sound more familiar. I'm from El Salvador, and I grew up there also in El Salvador. Where exactly? It's called Chalatenango. That's a district north of the capital San Salvador. It's about the same size and has about the same population as Canyon County. But its largest city is not as big as Nampa, where Natalie has been living for the past year and a half with her aunt. When I meet Natalie, she reminds me of someone. But I can't think who until a few days later. Who she reminds me of is Julia Roberts, circa Mystic Pizza. Natalie doesn't look all that much like Julia Roberts overall, but they have similar distinctive smiles, very wide smiles. She didn't smile much when we spoke, because, well, let's face it, both of these young women's stories are full of sorrow and suffering. But the few times she did, I thought the corners of her mouth would come together on the back of her head. As you heard, Natalie's English is pretty good, but she decided that for this, she'd rather speak in Spanish. So you'll hear a lot from a translator. I'm Geraldine Ramos. Thanks, Geraldine. Natalie was raised by her grandmother in El Salvador. Her parents have been out of the picture for a long time. She says life was always kind of violent in her hometown, but things didn't start to get really bad until about five years ago. There were a lot of gangs where I was from. Natalie's lawyer doesn't want her to talk much about what she saw and experienced with gang violence, but she will say that she witnessed gun battles between rival gangs and between gangs and the police. She says there's not much difference between the two. In reality, the police isn't safe. I'm ashamed to say that, but over there, the police isn't someone you should trust. I asked Natalie if things were more dangerous for girls than they were for boys. There are a lot of female deaths, but there are also a lot of male deaths. There's just a lot of violence everywhere. 
but she says girls have to worry about things boys don't. Sexual violence is a big problem. And Natalie says it's common there for gangs to tell girls as young as their early teens that they have to be the girlfriend of or even marry a gang member or be killed or have their family members killed. So Natalie says she only left her house when she absolutely had to. She'd go to the store to buy food for her family. I was going to high school. I would walk there every day. It was about a 15-minute walk. Natalie says she liked school a lot, both the school part of school and the social part. I had a lot of friends, honestly. We spent most of our time in school together. During breaks, we would eat together. Um, We would sit together at the lunch tables and just talk. But it had been a long time since she'd been able to hang out with her friends outside school. After the day's classes wrapped up, everyone would hurry home and lock their doors. For safety, uh, when you're home, you know what's going to happen, but when you're outside, you don't know what's going to happen. It's safer to just watch TV and stay at home. Throughout this interview, Natalie is reserved. Her body seems tense. She tends to give brief answers and speak in generalities rather than specifically about herself. I don't know how much of that comes from the awkwardness of speaking through an interpreter, how much of it is the painfulness of the topic, or if she's just not comfortable with this kind of thing. Some people are really good at telling their own stories and others struggle. I've been doing this a long time, and believe me, that's true even when people are speaking in their native language. As Natalie struggled to talk about the violence back home, her aunt, who was in the room, jumped in. Honestly, we do have a lot of fear in our hearts and on our minds. She's being a little cautious because this is going on the radio, but everyone sees how uh, difficult it is and how violent it is in El Salvador. Uh, We have family members who have been threatened and killed, and she was going to school and she didn't want to leave school, but you see the gang members will ask you to join these gangs, and if you don't join the gang, then you'll be killed. Or they'll, they'll tell you that you have to pay a certain amount of money by this date. And if you don't, then they'll kill you. Natalie had something her friends did not. Her aunt in Idaho. When Natalie was a kid, her aunt would come back to El Salvador for visits. In more recent years, they still talked on the phone a lot. And sometimes her aunt would send videos or pictures of Natalie's cousins in Idaho. I would just go through them and look at them. I liked looking at them a lot and the pictures of the snow with the little uh, snowmen and the little figures. It strikes me as strange, the idea of someone in a far-off part of the world hiding in her home from gangs, dreaming of Nampa. No offense to Nampa, it's just not a place I imagine people imagining. People dream about going to Paris or a sandy beach somewhere. Who dreams about Nampa? Well, a teenage girl in Chalatenango, El Salvador was. And one day, she decided, kind of out of the blue, she didn't have to dream. She could just go there. In reality, it was an immediate decision. So many things were happening that I just, I had to come. Natalie says she did not talk to anyone about her decision to leave El Salvador. Not her friends at school or her family. It was something that was mine. I didn't want to share it. It was mine. So, at 17 years old, Natalie got on a bus to Guatemala, then to Mexico, 
Tenía que ir preguntando más que todo. Yeah. I had to keep getting on other buses and asking people how to get to places. Her trip to the U.S. border to took more than two weeks. I slept wherever I could. When one gets started, you just find anywhere to sleep and eating. There were restaurants every so often, and sometimes people would help. One time we had to sleep in something that was kind of like a, a forest. It was like half a forest. I'm confused by the phrase, half a forest. We go around on that for a while. Me, Geraldine the interpreter, Natalie, Geraldine, me, back the other way. She means she slept on a mountainside sparsely covered with trees. Natalie says she went through jungles, deserts, mountains, tiny villages, huge cities. On the border of Guatemala, there was a crocodile. I've been on bus trips in third world countries, and they can be grueling. Old vehicles on rough roads. I can feel my bones rattle years later. But I went as a tourist because I wanted adventure. I naively asked Natalie if any part of the journey was fun. Now it's her turn to be confused. She talks the question over with her aunt and Geraldine before she gets what I'm asking. No, you don't enjoy something like that. Eventually, she came to the U.S. border. On the southern tip of Texas, about 70 miles from the Gulf of Mexico, is the city of McAllen. I think that's how you pronounce it, but you never know with Texas. Natalie was on the other side of the Rio Grande from McAllen. We had to cross a river, the one that divides the United States and Mexico, and that's where immigration caught us. When you say cross the river, that was not over a bridge on the bus? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Were you swimming? Estabas nadando en agua? No, no. Tuve que usar un flotador. A raft. She joined a group that was crossing on rafts. Now, some asylum seekers, especially those from Central American countries plagued by violence, like Natalie, actually seek out U.S. Border Patrol agents to turn themselves in. But Natalie did not want to get caught. She intended to make her way from Texas to Idaho on her own. Is that, a plan? Yeah, that was the plan. But she was caught and claimed asylum. First, they took her to a Border Patrol station for a few days. Natalie says there, a lot of official-seeming people asked her a lot of questions. Then she was taken to a detention center not far away. I was held there for a couple of days, and then they transferred me to New York, where they kept me for a lot longer, but I'm not exactly sure how long. The place in New York was a facility of the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Natalie describes it as an orphanage, but she says it was not a bad place to stay. She tries to figure out how long she was there. She thinks she was there for about four months because they released her into her aunt's custody just a few days before her 18th birthday. Her aunt brought her to Idaho, and her family threw her a party. They enrolled me in school. I met my family, my aunts, my uncles, who I had never met in person before but talked to on the phone a lot. I graduated high school, and here we are. Her aunt adds proudly that it only took Natalie six months to graduate from high school. Oh well, another person in this story who's a way better student than I ever was. So Natalie has been in this strange position for months now, and Maria is just joining her. They were allowed to go to high school, but they're not allowed to go to college. They're not allowed to get jobs. They can't do much of anything until the immigration court decides if they can stay or not. 
And because of the backlog in the system, what's taken a year and a half for Natalie and three years already for Maria could take years more. So I guess I have to just wait, patiently wait. Just wait to what happens next, you know, because there's a chance I could grab my papers. There's a chance that I can't and then I have to return home. Maria says all her friends have summer jobs already, and she won't see them much for the next few months at least. I kind of feel left out. That's the word I would say, left out, frustrated, um, stressed, desesperada, desperate. So it's kind of like, ugh. I'm almost 20 years old, and it's like you're an adult, and you have to pay for your own things and stuff like that. And you just see your parents, like, worrying about stuff and you're like oh I wish I could help but then you can't. So what do you do for fun? For fun. <laughs> I watch Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> <laughs> I love watching that show. Um, I also cook because I love food. <laughs> and she likes to read, watch YouTube, do social media stuff with her friends, mostly Snapchat. Facebook is apparently for old people like me. But she'd like to get a job. And even more than that. I want to go to college. That's something I really want since I'm little, you know. A little while ago, she visited the campus of Lewis Clark State College, liked it a lot, got the t-shirt. She'd love to start there, but then go on. She's thought about medicine, law, government. Natalie is waiting, too. I'm waiting so I can start school and get a degree and get a title. I haven't really decided in what. I was thinking psychology and, well, maybe a lawyer. But I don't know. I just want to go to school, get my degree, and do something good. I asked Geraldine to ask Natalie why she's interested in psychology. I don't know. I just think that it's something that I'd be able to help people in. I'm not sure. I think it's something that I could do good in. And I think that in what I've gone through, I've matured, and I think I can help others do the same. In the meantime, she's really enjoying the freedom she didn't have back in El Salvador. Her aunt took her to Las Vegas, and she's getting to know Idaho. Last summer, we went to Stanley, McCall. But there's a very real possibility that neither Maria or Natalie will ever get to go to school in the U.S., they could easily be sent back to El Salvador and Mexico. Asylum is often hard to get in U.S. courts. Maria and Natalie have to prove they need and deserve it, and the bar is high. Plus, the Trump administration has already come out with policies for federal agencies that suggest the president has no intention of making things easier for unaccompanied minors to stay in the country. Maria is worried, but she's trying not to be. All my family members are like, think positive. So I guess I'm trying to think in that positive way, like, oh, you're going to get your, your visa, you're going to be here, you're going to get to go to college. So she'll wait. And wait some more, and probably then wait some more, and then... I guess just wait and... Um, what's that word? Se me olvidó esa palabra, disfrutar. Enjoy. Enjoy the time I'm here and with my family, my friends. But you know what? Maria and Natalie would much, much rather wait on an uncertain, scary future in Nampa and Caldwell than in El Salvador or Michoacan, Mexico. I'm Adam Cotterell, 
and you've been listening to Some of the Parts, a podcast from Boise State Public Radio. I write it and produce it. Paul Stribling oversees it. Lacey Daly does a bunch of stuff to make it happen. Our theme song, which you are undoubtedly bobbing your head rhythmically to right now, is by Up Is The Down Is The, logo by Julia Green Illustration. A huge thanks to the law offices of Nicole R. Durden. This episode would not have happened without, once again, the law offices of Nicole R. Durden. Is that what it would be like if we had a sponsor? Hey, Squarespace, you sponsor every other podcast in the world. Idahoans need to make websites, too. But since this is either the final episode of this podcast ever, or the final episode of season one, I have some thanks beyond this episode. Scott Graff and Paul Stribling, whose jobs were and are, respectively, getting good stuff on the radio in southwest Idaho 24-7, listened to an idea that was essentially, how about I spend a bunch of time doing stuff that won't go on the radio, and said, okay, that's vision. Or foolishness, I really don't know. Thanks to Lacey Daly, who had a bunch of responsibilities for this project thrust upon her and picked them up and ran with them exceedingly well. Thanks to Frankie Barnhill for a huge amount of support and help and encouragement on this thing, none of which she had to do. That's leadership. And thanks most of all to Rebecca Cotterell for, well, everything. You know, when I first told Maria I was doing a podcast, she had some advice. She said the podcast audience just won't sit still like radio audiences. Sometimes they would be like running all over the place and they won't let themselves. Or and sometimes they'll just come to you and you'll just take them home and you'll feed them before you leave. This is Some of the Parts.